Good morning. It's always a treat to be able to drive out here to this beautiful part of Long Island and to see you and to, uh, and to worship God with you. Well, you heard the text uh, read earlier. When the Lord Jesus was 12 years old, his parents lost him when returning from their annual trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover at the temple. Now let that sink in for a moment. Jesus' parents lost him on a trip. Uh, it one might be excused for wondering, what's going on with Mary and Joseph? The story, of course, as we had read to us from Luke chapter 2, explains that they assumed Jesus was somewhere in the caravan. Now, eventually, of course, they found him back at the temple, still astonishing teachers with his questions and his wisdom. You see, in ancient times, travel between cities was always dangerous. There were people who would seek to harm you, to misdirect you, or to steal your treasure. Remember that the Good Samaritan stopped to help a man who had been assaulted by robbers between cities. Likely, that man had taken the huge risk of traveling through the countryside alone. But caravans were safe because caravans provided protection in numbers. Joseph and Mary could rightly assume that 12-year-old Jesus was somewhere among the scores of families, neighbors, and friends from hometown Nazareth who made up their huge caravan. The Bible often pictures life as a journey. A journey, as hymn writer John Newton describes it, through many dangers, toils, and snares. A journey that eventually brings every person who lives on earth to one destination. And that destination is the very throne room of the God who created us. Psalm 84 gives us a word picture of what it's like to envision your life as a journey as you pass through dangerous territory. And there are lessons for God's people today in the concept of the caravan as we journey through this life. Give attention to the word of God as I read Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. 
O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For the day, a day in your courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. O God, our Father, bless us with new insights into your word, that our hearts may be filled and our minds enlightened and our paths set straight. Open my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may declare your praise. Amen. Psalm 84 is one of 11 psalms written by a gifted family of songwriters, family of Korah, or the sons of Korah. This particular psalm appears to have been inspired originally out of their own personal life experience as it connects to this particular clan of Israel, to their work in the temple of God in Jerusalem. You see, the sons of Korah were assigned to serve as gatekeepers in modern parlance, but doorkeepers for the tabernacle, and later in the temple of God, as David and Solomon had it built in Jerusalem. Now, that means that the sons of Korah worked as protectors of God's house. They had to understand its worship services thoroughly. Who was allowed in which areas for which part of the service? Who was to be kept away from the sacred areas so that they would not violate the holiness of God? In some ways, their job as doorkeepers might be compared to serving as secret service agents for the White House with a bit of janitorial work thrown in, to be sure. And it was in their service that they developed a joyous love for God's house as a place of his special presence among his chosen people. For in the Old Testament, God made his special presence there in the temple. And his presence there was unique in all the earth. Psalm 84 reflects a love and an awe of being in close to that special presence of God. And the daily experience of seeing the holiness and the goodness of God acted out in the temple ceremonies, well, that had a very moving effect on the men who wrote this psalm. The, the writers of Psalm 84 speak with such elation over God's goodness that they even see it portrayed in the birds. Even the sparrow finds a home. The most humble of the birds feels welcome in God's house. And the swallow a nest for herself. Now, swallows typically dart back and forth through the skies, busy and unsettled. That sound like anybody you know? <laughs> but here in the courts of the Lord, even the swallow is compelled to peace, security, and rest, to be still, 
in the presence of God. Toward the end, this psalmist expresses such exuberance about being in the presence of God that he exclaims that nothing in the world, nothing that the world has to offer, could possibly compare. He writes, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. Here's what we can take from this scripture today. In the midst of the soaring phrasings of Psalm 84, we find three markers about how life as a church community pictures the way that God in, intends and created us to relate to him. These three markers are in the very center in the psalm. Look at them in verses 5, 6, and 7. These three markers are hearts in pursuit of God's presence, hardship transformed into blessing, and strength magnified into strength. As a pastor, I find particular joy in pointing a congregation to these three markers. For I see outlined in Psalm 84 a pattern of our covenant relationship to God that finds an analogy in the church. Here on earth, within the local church community, we begin to realize what life forever together with God will be like. This earthly reality is intended to point us to the way that God created the human soul to delight in his presence. The first of these three markers, again, is a deep compulsion to seek God's presence, a heart in pursuit of God's presence. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As members of the human race, we tend to view reality as being obsessively, obsessively focused on our success and our happiness here and now. Psalm 84 applauds the greater wondrousness of being obsessively focused on the presence of our Creator God. When the psalmist speaks of Zion, he indicates the place where God's special presence resides. He declares, blessed those who are convinced that the reality of what it means to truly live can be found only in God himself and only in God alone. Now this is an extremist mindset to be sure. But that kind of extreme heart conviction changes a person. You become singularly focused on seeking out the pleasure of God's company. You want to find every highway that will take you there, so much so that you make time to travel down those highways regularly, and you frequently search the scriptures for new roads to the presence of God. St. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We are fashioned by God to be connected to God. Anything less than him drains both body and soul. 
One translation renders the meaning of the Hebrew phrase in this verse, blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Translating Hebrew is sometimes a little squirrely. And these translators saw this intent in the psalmist's choice of words. Now, in this particular translation, there is a recognition that our present situation is not our final state. Life on earth is like a journey down highways and side roads, and one day that journey will reach a destination. When that day comes, the Bible tells us this final destination will be a place where there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Being an active part of your church community will remind you of this truth, and that's why you need to be in this caravan. You need to be in this caravan. Why? Because the next verse of Psalm 84 reminds us that this earthly journey is a journey filled with hardship. This leads us to a second marker of how the church as a caravan pictures the way we relate to God. Hardship transformed into blessing. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The valley of Baca means the valley of weeping. More than ever before, I think we can see that today's world is a world of weeping, a world of hurt, a world of pain. It's a world of people inflicting pain on one another, blaming and shaming and not seeing that they themselves are also creating great hurt and pain, especially these past two years in our American experience. It is as though all the joy and vibrancy of life have dried up and blown away. In the same way, the word picture created in Psalm 84 is that of a dry, arid valley. When it rains there, the land is so parched that it soaks up the blessing of the rain so that none remains for travelers passing through on their way to Jerusalem. Here and there on their journey, travelers would find cisterns of water, hollows in the rock deep enough for rainwater to collect. Some of these were natural cisterns, but some of these cisterns had been dug out of rock by people who had themselves passed through this dry valley. They did it to help others. They did it to bless those who would come after them into these desolate places. The journey through life is hard. Life is hurtful. Life is filled with disappointments and agonies and even death. The psalmist writes that those who are in pursuit of God's presence use their hardship along the journey to transform weeping to blessing. They convert their own trials and sufferings into sources of sustenance and encouragement for those who come through these same places after them. Why? 
are they compelled to do this? Why should we be compelled? 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, it's the love of Christ which compels us. The more time that you spend in the presence of God, the more your heart will be tuned to his agenda, his mission. Verse 6 says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of blessing. The Lord Jesus commissioned his disciples with these words, as you go, as you go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. I have uh, a new evangelical hero in my life. His name is William Wilberforce. He's the man who, as a member of parliament, brought an end to the slave trade in England half a century before our civil war brought an end to slavery in America. I've been reading his remarkable story in the biography about William Wilberforce, written by Eric Metaxas, entitled Amazing Grace, and I highly recommend that book to you. William Wilberforce faithfully and persistently used his position in Parliament, his gifts of oratory, and even his personal likableness, personal likableness to to change the heart of a nation, to undo a monstrous evil, and to give the blessings of life and liberty to thousands who had had it taken from them. Now, you may be compelled to think, well, I could never do anything like that for the kingdom of God. You would be right, and you would be wrong. You would be right because all of us are called to ordinary faithfulness with simply the gifts that God has entrusted to us. And you would be wrong because it is through such ordinary faithfulness that he is pleased to work through us because all the glory goes to God. Back in my second career as a missionary to international students in our campuses, I was once introduced to a young couple who served full-time on the staff of the Christian Discipleship Ministry known as the Navigators. Now, This young couple already had a very full ministry among various churches in the Dallas, Texas area, and yet, in addition to this, they had signed up to be a host family to an international student through one of our ministry teams at their local church. They would befriend an international student, include him in their activities, and just be a friend to him. Now, I found this to be very unusual. So I asked them, what motivated you to spend extra time on a ministry that was not part of your ministry jobs? And their reply was simply this. Well, Jesus said we are to be his witnesses in three areas, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we figure we've got the first two covered with our ministry, but we can't go overseas. So befriending this international student is the way we can be involved in the third area. 
And so they extended themselves to make a home, their home, a refuge, a place of mercy for a foreign student going it alone in America. And he was over there at their house frequently. They dug a cistern for him so that he could be refreshed in a strange land and in such a way that it brought him under the influence of and the witness of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes we think, Lord, I am not ready to do that kind of work. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Moses said when God spoke to him through the burning bush. Lord, I'm not ready to do your work. I'm not equipped for this. The Lord said, Moses, what's that in your hand? He was standing there with his shepherd's staff. It's a shepherd's staff, Lord. Throw it down, Moses, and I will show you how I will work through you. For I have already put in your hands the things I will use to glorify myself through you. Now, if you've not read in Exodus, this story, Moses throws down his staff. It turns into a serpent. And then God instructs him to pick up the serpent, so he grabs it by the tail and returns to his shepherd's staff. In this little incident, God had given Moses a small demonstration of the power he would give him to deliver Israel from the Egyptians. The big ones would come later, parting the Red Sea. Shepherd's staff. You see, that's how it works. God has already put in your hands the things that he intends to use to glorify himself through you. It's in your hand already. Psalm 39, 139 exclaims of God, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He designed who you would be. Everything about you is by design. And then he crafted you according to that guide, that design, and and he's guided you through each moment of your life, even overseeing your choices and the actions of others which shape who you are today. Last month, I endured a couple of weeks of miserable symptoms of COVID-19. I needed an oxygen machine, and I couldn't get one through the usual channels. But a friend of a friend heard about my need, and she drove for an hour from her home on North Long Island to get me her oxygen machine. This dear Christian, whom I had never met, brought me her cistern when I was in great need. Great need. As a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will encounter opportunities to use your particular gifts and resources to create cisterns as you go throughout life. Cisterns that will bless others in need, whoever they are, 
be they members of God's family or someone who would curse everything that you stand for. That is your calling. It is also worth noting that the source of blessing found in these cisterns was rain from heaven. You see, pilgrims dug the cisterns, but they did not create the rain. Their labors were based on the expectation of blessings from God, blessings which these travelers would share freely with others of God's people, as well as people who had not yet taken up a journey toward the mercy of God. And being connected to a church community will give you the opportunity to serve together with other Christians where your gifts will combine with their gifts, and together these will result in a ministry of great blessing to the people in the community where God has planted you, here. When, when you bless other people with your gifts, you are continuing the ministry which Jesus started when he lived among us. That was his calling to the disciples, his commission. We've inherited that calling. But to do it well, you need to be in this caravan. You need to be engaged in the community of this church. So much of the mindset of American independence has filtered into our mindset as Christians. And we tend to see our life of faith is something that's lived out individually. There is that aspect to it. What we have been missing in our culture, our Christian subculture in America, is the mindset of the caravan and the protections and the encouragements and the strengthening and the ministry that that brings. The third, thirdly, in, in Psalm 84, it says that something happens to people whose hearts are in pursuit of God's ex, pardon me, in pursuit of God's presence. What happens is they become recipients of greater strength. Verse seven: They go from strength to strength. Their strength is magnified into greater strength. They become stronger better people. Well, how do they become stronger, better people? Well, we might point to 1 Corinthians 9.25 where the Apostle Paul compares spiritual strengthening to an athlete who exercises self-control in all things. That's a greater strengthening. Certainly that's a factor, but it's more than that. We might also point to the writer of Hebrews 5.14 where he speaks of mature Christians as those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's greater strengthening for the Christian, but it's more than that, too. The writer of Psalm 84 explains that the reason people whose hearts are in pursuit of God's presence go from strength to strength is because, verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Why do you become a stronger, better person? Why would these benefits of inward strength and resilience come to you? 
They will be given to you, says Psalm 84, when you decide, I'm going to pursue the presence of God anew. I'm going to draw closer to him. I will choose to look at life as a journey, as a pilgrimage to God's house. Of course, there are many contrary voices in American culture. Those voices which control the loudest microphones today. These voices shout that to give yourself up to such radical devotion to Christ is folly. Voices on one side call you to give up such devotion because it's unintelligent. Religion is a man-made fabrication that ignores the scientific realities of life. These people call on you to become a modern, independent thinker. Voices on the other side of the spectrum call on you to restrain such radical devotion because it's embarrassing. Ah, there is wisdom in traditions and faith, but don't go overboard. These people call on you to be a self-sufficient, rugged individualist. Then there's the call of the gospel of Christ Jesus. The issue, my friends, comes down to this. Do you really believe the Bible when it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you? Are you ready to take that next step? Are you sensing the pull of the Spirit of God to draw you nearer to his presence? If that is happening to you, first thing that must be recognized, the glory goes to God. For it is the Lord God who gives a person's heart the desire to pursue his presence. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God reminds us, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And the glory, therefore, goes to God. Secondly, it is the Lord God who provides the rain that fills the cisterns, which enable you to minister mercy and grace. We are the human instruments of that grace, but the glory goes to God. Thirdly, it is the Lord God who is a sun and a shield, who bestows favor and honor, and who withholds nothing from those who walk uprightly. As your heart is swept up in a joyfulness that frees you to embrace life with new enthusiasm, remember, the glory goes to God. Hebrews 10 offers us this final encouragement. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The Lord God of heaven and earth who created you, who crafted you to be the person you are today, is calling you to live out your Christian faith 
as a full participant in your church community. You need to be in this character. For when Christians combine their gifts to serve one another, serve their neighbors, the glory. Lord, you have brought us here this day not by accident, but by appointment. You have guided the details of life in such a way that those who have heard the preaching of your word today have had a personal sermon preached to them, to their hearts and their minds, by your Holy Spirit. Do your work, O God, for it is you who enables us to desire to crave your presence. So satisfy our hearts and our souls with good things. For you are a Father who knows how to give good gifts to you. Thank you for this. Expectantly praising your name. In Jesus' name.